Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm Annie Hanmar, and in this episode, I bring you part two of the live audio from the Moon Village Association Forum on the Moon in Melbourne last month. In this episode, we hear talks from journalist and writer Caridwin Dovey, space lawyer Donna Lawler, and space historian Kerry Doherty. Let's dive straight in. Next up, we have Caridwin Dovey. Caridwin writes fiction and contributes essays to The New Yorker, The Monthly, and Wired magazine. She has written about who has the power to imagination our space futures, the pitfalls of space, resource race led by the corporations and the mysteries of moon dust and Australia's responsibilities on the moon. Her essays have been selected for the best Australian science writing 2019, the best American science and nature writing 2018, and the best Australian essays 2015. Her most recent work book, sorry, her most recent book is Inner Worlds, Outer Spaces, The Working Lives of Others which contains profiles of several Australians with fascinating space careers, including Donna Lawler here, Alice Gorman, who are also speaking and have spoken. <laughs> and please put your hands together for Caridwin Dovey. Thanks, Thomas. Luckily, Alice and I made a pact that we were going to both read our talks. So, In the early 1980s, the American Frank White a longtime fan of space settlement, was thinking about what it might be like for future space settlers to see Earth hanging in their sky, day after day, and whether that sight would ever become routine. He found a couple of astronauts' descriptions of how they'd felt while in space on looking back at Earth. It wasn't something that had been much detailed, Often, it was the harrowing side to their jobs as astronauts that was emphasized to heighten the prestige of their profession as astronaut. Yet when these astronauts had some rare time to float and to gaze, some of them later described to Frank White experiencing feelings of bliss and an intuitive understanding of Earth as a unified planet rather than as a patchwork of national identities. White coined a term for this, the overview effect. And in the decades since, the overview effect has become part of the lingo of anybody interested in space, and also one of the main moral justifications used for why it's important to get as many people into space as possible. 
Certainly seeing images of Earth from space initiated a shift in environmental consciousness in the 60s. Yet even this new perspective on our planet hasn't in fact helped us to slow or prevent catastrophic climate change in that same time period. And in recent years, as space has been commercialized and there's a financial motive for many private space companies to have the public support their plans, the overview effect has been promoted even more enthusiastically, like in the 2018 National Geographic series, One Strange Rock, in which astronauts describe quasi-religious feelings while gazing at Earth from space. Many said that seeing Earth from space made them better people. We went to the moon as technicians, said astronaut Edgar Mitchell. We returned as humanitarians. I hate to be the one to point this out, but some of them, in fact, returned as depressed alcoholics. Yuri Gagarin and Buzz Aldrin among them. And Mitchell went on to become convinced that aliens have been visiting Earth for decades. The overview effect, while on paper a lovely idea, is also very much bound to the cultural context of white American males, since that's what the majority of astronauts have been. So we really have no idea what effect it would have on most of the world's population to see Earth from space. Each culture or religion might have a completely different response, not all of them positive. For some, the overview effect might trigger a crisis of faith or space psychosis or hopelessness as people become overwhelmed by the existential challenges of seeing Earth in that way. There's also the uncomfortable question at the heart of any claim that gazing at Earth from space will make us better people. Who is doing the looking? And if they're collecting visual data as they gaze, what will it be used for in reality? This is the dystopian underbelly of the overview effect, and new forms of surveillance in space are already being deployed. Take, for instance, the new stratospheric satellites, or stratolites, that a company called Worldview Enterprises is already launching into space. The stratolite, essentially, is a surveillance device. It has a camera on it that's so accurate, once it's been carried up to the edge of space by a stratospheric balloon, it can tell whether a person on the ground is holding a shovel or a gun. When Worldview begins selling that visual data from its stratolites this year, guess who the first official buyers will be? The US Department of Defense, of course, and the major oil and gas companies who want to use the data to monitor and extend their operations on Earth. But let's step away from the politics of the present for a moment and back a bit in time. In case you've ever wondered, outer space was first called outer space by Alexander von Humboldt in 1845. He was a Prussian naturalist who's widely considered to be the first nature writer in the sense that we understand the form today. Unlike the dry, almost unreadable tomes of his scientific colleagues, Humboldt wrote about his nature expeditions around the globe, 
with a poetic glint in his eye and with a desire to express through his writing his whole earth thinking. He believed that science, art, and the emotions should and could go hand in hand when it came to understanding nature. What speaks to the soul, he said, escapes our measurements. Humboldt formed a revolutionary understanding of the interconnections between everything on Earth, an early precursor to the Gaia hypothesis of the globe as a self-regulating organism. He was the first to have the insight that nature is expressed in similar ways in regions with the same climates around the globe. And his was a very critical eye when it came to human life. He was an outspoken critic of slavery and of the travesties of colonization and extractive economies around the world and how they led to war and environmental collapse. He also studied astronomy and imagined in his own words, a bleak future of humankind's eventual expansion into space when humans would spread their lethal mix of vice, greed, violence, and ignorance across other planets, leaving distant stars barren and ravaged. I think it's time for ordinary citizens like me and you to stop letting ourselves be hoodwinked by companies who like to wax lyrical about the overview effect and instead ask the difficult questions about what social and environmental justice in space might really look like, the kinds of questions Alexander von Humboldt might have asked if he were alive today. It seems that we're stuck in the same zero-sum thinking that stops us dealing with the disaster of climate change, space industry jobs and profit at any cost versus sustainability and ethical leadership in space. Where are the visions for interaction in space based, for instance, on indigenous knowledge systems, like the author of Sand Talk, Tyson Yunker-Porter's description of a web of connections between terrestrial communities and country in the sky? He writes, there are living rocks up there as there are down here, and the dark spaces between the stars are not a vacuum but solid lands that have mass and sentience, reflecting places and times on Earth. Wendell Berry, the American environmentalist and farmer, has noted that people exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value, but they defend what they love. Perhaps if the moon and the rest of space can be redefined as part of nature, we might move from the cooler-hued emotion of gaping at them from a distance towards the more passionate feeling of love. Then those outer space places can become sites of resistance as the wildest places on Earth have always been to encroachment by us humans. Nature, by definition, does not refer only to living things. It refers to the physical world and everything in it that is not human or made by humans. Landscapes, rocks, geological deep time, all these things exist in space as on Earth. And for once in our history, we have the chance to defend the natural wilderness of outer space from our worst impulses before the destruction begins. 
We also have the good fortune of having developed our ethical thinking so that many of us now understand that nature has an intrinsic worth and the right to exist outside of any benefit it may bring to humans. If landforms on Earth have an intrinsic right to exist, surely the same should go for landforms off Earth. If we have considered granting certain environmental objects the legal right to sue for their own preservation, for instance, rivers in America, India and New Zealand, which have been granted a form of personhood and accompanying rights, then might we do the same for the moon's South Pole crater before all of its water ice is plundered, or for asteroids before they are mined out of existence. I don't mean to be a buzzkill by poking a hole in the overview effect, but I am asking you not to let those with the most to gain from industrializing space brainwash you into believing that they are doing anything up there for humanitarian reasons alone. In fact, I believe that the true value of getting a citizen satellite with video capabilities in space, as the Moon Village Association is planning, is not to give us all a warm, fuzzy overview effect. It's to give us a way to hold accountable anyone operating up there, since most of these companies are cut from the same Silicon Valley cloth and operate under extreme secrecy. We need independent ways of monitoring space activities and recording concrete visual evidence of wrongdoing. Without that information, we are flying blind and we'll have no chance of stopping the extension of surveillance capitalism off Earth, nor of preventing space from becoming yet another destroyed and lost wilderness. Thanks, Greta. It's fantastic. And uh, a lot of food for thought there. And uh, if you don't know Alexander von Humboldt, then you must. He's a great man. Up next, we have Donna Lawler. Donna is the co-founder and principal at Azimuth Advisory and is a member of the International Institute of Space Lawyers. She's an experienced commercial lawyer specialising in complex transactions involving space activities over almost 20 years in the space industry, she has been an advisor of a range of commercial space organisations, including operations of geostationary and low-Earth orbit satellite constellations, spaceport operators and launch service providers. In particular, she has had key involvement in the build, launch and insurance programs for six geostationary satellites on behalf of Optus and its parent company, Singtel. Donna has published joint papers on space law topics internationally and has presented on commercial space law topics in Australia, including the International Space University's Southern Hemisphere Space Program. Also in Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, South Africa, Taiwan, United States, and now M Pavilion. So put your hands together for Donna. Thank you so much, Thomas. And thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's such an honour to be here on a female for the first time. Um, I, uh, after talking very briefly to Gabrielle at the beginning, uh, I, I changed the way that I was going to start this discussion because her first question to me, which she just reiterated, was 
who is going to stop these companies from doing whatever they like? Who is going to regulate that? Can't they just do what they like? And that reiterates uh, the question, um, reiterates a, a common belief, not saying that you share that belief, but, but many uh, purport to say that space is a wild, wild west and that it is essentially a legal vacuum. Uh, well, my, uh, what I'm here to say to you today is that it's absolutely not a legal vacuum. There is a lot of law and uh, there is a lot of law that has come out of some of the darkest period of human history, not the darkest but a dark period of human history, which is the Cold War period where we had uh, Russia and the United States in particular um, at each other's, almost at the verge of being at each other's throats. And what emerged out of that from the point of view of space, because we're in the middle of the space race, was miraculously a form of cooperation that you could never have predicted, really. Uh, they actually reached international agreement on international treaties. So in the year that I was born, and I'm now giving a lot away here, <laughs> 1967, the Outer Space Treaty came into being, and there were... Um, the Outer Space Treaty enshrines a number of principles which I still regard as almost miraculous today. And so they're, they're almost the antidote to the dystopian view that you're fearing, which I certainly wouldn't discount because with any um, technology can be used for very dark purposes and very good purposes. We've, we've found from... So many, so many examples, which I won't reiterate now. But out of that time came the Outer Space Treaty, under which we enshrined such principles as uh, there, the space is free for use for all, they use the word mankind, I'll say humankind, for all humankind. Uh, the uh, freedom of exploration there is a rule against national appropriation. So we've all seen the famous image of the United States putting its flag into the, to the moon, and some believe the United States was claiming the moon. In fact, they were not, and they were very explicit at the time. We're not claiming sovereignty over the moon because they, um, in 1967, the agreement had been made, we are not claiming any national appropriation. Uh, Furthermore, um, under the, the Outer Space Treaty, um, which is declared space to be um, exploration used for, for, for all humankind and as the province of all humankind, um, the clear intention is that space shall be used for peaceful purposes. So we know that there's a lot of military use of space in various kinds, and yet these treaties express very clearly the Outer Space Treaty and the following treaties, ending with the Moon Agreement in 1979, that the, the intention underlying them all is, is the use of space for pe peaceful purposes. Um, and then one of the last principles I'll just mention from the Outer Space Treaty, each country shall pay due regard to um, the activities of all of the other countries as they are, are operating. So that is just a, a general overview of, of some of the miraculous cooperation and collaboration that took place at one of the darkest times in history. And so fast forward to now, 
when there is a strong desire to move away from globalization on the part of the United States um, and they're champing at the, the bit in a way to free their, their entrepreneurs um, to, to do whatever they like uh, and yet they are constrained by the Outer Space Treaty and they completely acknowledge that they are. So I've, I've been to the United uh, Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee and a number of people will be there again who are here will be there with me again in, in April this year. Uh, and it's very clear that the United States and, and all of the countries are there deeply respect the principles that are there in the Outer Space Treaty. A, a, actually, a final principle that I should mention from the Outer Space Treaty is, is the need to supervise and authorise. Each country agrees to supervise and authorise the activities of its citizens, including the companies. And so what that means is if you are Elon Musk or if you're a, a new space company in Australia, you can't just uh, decide that I'm going to go and mine the moon or... Um, or lasso an asteroid or, or send any object into space without your, a, a, an international obligation for your country to supervise and authorise what you do. And that is the reason why we have national space laws in Australia, in the United States and in many, in many other countries in the world, increasing numbers who are now um, bringing, as, as uh, access to space becomes more um, accessible and cheaper, more countries are actually bringing in these laws. And so what, are the, what do those laws say in Australia? And interestingly, Australia's national space laws, which have just been updated last year, reflect, uh, interestingly, you were talking about culture, they respect, re reflect the Australian values as expressed in these laws. And the principles on which they are based, firstly, uh, compliance with international law, protection of the space environment, authorisation and super, um, supervision of all activities by Australian companies and, and uh, Australian um, humans, Australian people who want to engage in, in space space activities, um, a reasonable and appropriate balance between uh, the activities of companies that might cause Australian taxpayers liability um, compared to the need to develop Australian industry. Uh, and so these are the kinds of principles and values. I'm sure they haven't always gotten everything right in these laws, but there is a, a, a strong desire to reflect um, those values in the in the national um, laws that we have, and my own experience with twenty years um, working at Optus in a, a space operator uh, is that there is a deep desire amongst the people that I've dealt with uh, to be good space citizens, whether or not the law requires them to do so. And that's of course not across the board around the world, but my own cultural values in space were developed by my experience working at Optus amongst people who've been in the industry for 30 years and more and who are deeply passionate about protecting the environment and doing the right thing at all times. Um, in the last two minutes I have left, I will quickly mention the principles 
in many of our favourite um, space instrument, which is the Moon Agreement. So Australia is one of the only 18 states parties to the Moon Agreement. Uh, as a result of lobbying at the last minute, um, the United States ended up not becoming a party and as a result, many other... Most, most of the other countries of the world didn't sign. But 18 states parties have, have signed. Uh, and Australia is a proud member of that agreement and is, a, is passionate about actually complying with its principles, at least as far as I can tell from talking to the space agency. And briefly, I'll, I'll outline some of, the, some of the principles. It is an agreement that is designed around enabling the use of resources on the moon. It's not about blocking the use of resources on the moon, but it is about um, enabling the, the, the resources that might be found on the moon and asteroids, other celestial bodies, for scientific purposes, for the benefit of all humankind, uh, and, uh, and with the desire of avoiding um, militarisation and, and use of military, establishment of military bases on, on the moon and, and on those celestial bodies. And under that agreement, the moon is regarded as the common heritage of all humankind, a principle which uh, is a, uh, a guiding force to the way the regime that will soon be, well, soon, that is being discussed that will um, govern the international uh, governance of exploitation of resources on the moon. So just um, lastly, just to explain some, the way the principles work, the moon expressly permits the use, uh, the moon agreement expressly, expressly permits the use and uh, of uh, use of moon resources for the um, support of scientific missions so whether or not there's a governance regime internationally, that is currently legally permitted by states parties of the Moon Agreement. So those that think that Australia can't participate in the space economy because it's a member of the Moon Agreement might be missing that key point, that Australia almost can be using the Moon Agreement as a superpower um, because we are one of the only 18 countries that has, in effect, expressed permission from the international community to use resources for scientific purposes. Um, and then lastly, there is a, a, an understanding that general commercial exploitation of those resources, so one might imagine for commercial purposes, uh, is um, before that occurs, before that is about to become feasible, there is an understanding that the states' parties will get together and create an international regime and that um, regime or one that one that is similar to that is going to be under discussion uh, at the um, United Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Later in April it will be chaired by um, a Polish man and an Australian man who happens to be my husband Professor Stephen Freeland. So please watch this space in April, there will be at least the beginnings of some discussions around an international regime. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Donna. Fantastic. Hope, hopefully you can all start to see, starting with Alice, uh, talking about black and white shadows, how we see what we're seeing, moving on to culture 
and the culture we take with us. And then Keridwin's critique on the intent and intention, but also then moving through to governance and structures around actually how we move forwards. Leaves us with Kerry. Kerry Doherty, we're very honoured to have Kerry here tonight. She spoke at our last event uh, in 2019. Kerry is an independent space historian, curator and educator. She is also a senior policy advisor with the Australian Space Agency and a member of the faculty of the International Space University, where she lectures in space humanities. Kerry has written widely about Australia's space history, including written numerous papers, book chapters and two books on the subject. Her most recent book, Australia in Space, was published in 2017. As curator of space technology at the Powerhouse Museum, Kerry was Australia's first specialist museum curator in the space field, developing Australia's first major space exhibits and consulting on the development of space displays nationally and internationally. Kerry is an elected member of the International Academy of Astronauts and in recognition of her contributions to the history, preservation and public awareness of the Australian space activities, she was recently awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. So put your hands together for Kerry. Thank you. And actually, I guess I should disclaim being a member of the International Academy of Astronauts. Um, I haven't quite made it into space yet, but I am a member of the International Academy of Astronautics. <laughs> so mo most of us are a bit more earthbound, but our, our, our heads and our hearts are in the stars. But um, when uh, Thomas first approached me about uh, doing uh, this talk tonight, he said, I wanted to talk about the past and the present of space and uh, something about ethics. And I thought, well, in 10 minutes, that's going to be a, a very big ask. So I'm partially reacting here to what some of my colleagues have said in their, uh, their uh, presentations this evening. Um, and I'd like to start by picking up from uh, Alice's interest in shadows. Because the moon is something that uh, every culture on earth has seen in the sky. Every human being, every pre-human being has seen in the sky since time began. And we were aware that there was something beyond the surface of the earth. And that moon, which we've considered to be a god or a goddess... And while many Western cultures see the moon as a goddess, there are others who see the moon as a masculine figure. Um, we've considered the moon to be some kind of a deity, but we've also seen the moon as an incredibly useful tool for the earth, if I can put it that way. Because you consider at night, the moon is the only light that existed before the invention of anything more than fire. So before candles, before electric light or even kerosene light, there was the moon was the only way you had light at night to move around. And so much of the activities of early cultures were based around the availability of moonlight at night. In agrarian cultures, um, you could harvest by the light of the full moon at certain times of the year. In hunting, hunting cultures, you could hunt at night animals that might only be nocturnal by the light of the full moon at certain times of the year. So the moon gave us um, a world of light and shadow at night to parallel the light and shadow 
during the day. It's given us a way of not only dividing um, our days, as in the sun and the moon providing day and night, the moon gave us some of our earliest timekeeping. So the month, of course, which was that basic division of time before anybody came up with the idea of the week or a weekend, uh, was based on the cycle of the moon. Many uh, ancient societies based their calendar on the moon rather than the sun. And many religions today still use a lunar-based calendar because of that very ancient connection to timing by the sequence of the moon's phases. So the moon has been there giving us a way of thinking that we couldn't have if it wasn't in the sky. Isaac Asimov actually wrote an interesting um, article one uh, many years ago now, actually, which I recommend you all read if you can get a hold of it. It's called The Tragedy of the Moon. And he actually postulated that if the moon hadn't been in the, in the sky, apart from the fact that we'd have not have had those ways of timekeeping and such that we associate with the moon, we also might not have had an idea of um, planetary motion or possi you know, possibly even the idea of um, thinking that there could be anything beyond the Earth. Because when we look at the, at the moon, we can see something in the sky which is regularly changing and something that moves across the sky, unlike the stars, which are absolutely fixed. You know, their pattern's unchanging over any kind of human span. And uh, I think that's quite an interesting way to think about it, that if we hadn't had the moon as a kind of example in the sky, uh, we wouldn't have had the same approach to astronomy, the same approach to our, our ideas of the, the depths of the cosmos without that example close to us. The, and those shadows on the moon, you know, the moon doesn't only create shadows on the earth, but the shadows that Alice talked about on the moon have become, again, a very early part of human culture. Consider, and I'm sure all of you were told the stories when you were little, of those, those dark and light patches on the moon um, and that they made different uh, pictures depending on what your culture was. So, you know, when I was a little girl, I looked up at the moon and I was, uh, you know, I was told that that was the huntsman, the wood, sorry, the woodsman coming home with his pile of wood on his back. Um, yeah, other people say that there's a rabbit in the moon and the Chinese have actually taken that idea from their culture to name their uh, current lunar rover, um, the Jade Rabbit, their, uh, which is one of their particular mythologies of the moon. So the moon has been there in a, lurking in our culture <laughs> from the very beginning. And because it has had such an... Actually, no, before I go on to that, I'm going to pick up something that Kerrigan said about, um, you know, perhaps one of the ways to preserve the moon in the future is by getting us to love the moon. And I think, you know, the moon is already a symbol of love. How many, how many love songs have we all heard, you know, um, about that involve the moon and, and, you know, the honeymoon? Um, how many were conceived under the moonlight? <laughs> Quite sure many of us. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and it, it, it uh, you know, we, we have a love for the moon which is culturally ingrained in many of us. And I think certainly in Western society, we put this emphasis on love and the moon. 
Now, I'm not quite sure how we do it, but is there a way to pick up that and say, we know the moon is our symbol of love and so we should, we should love the moon in return? And I'm open to suggestions if anybody wants to, uh, to pick that up. And, in fact, I think, um, you know, this idea of having a camera on the moon, um, as Keridwin says, it gives us an eye to keep, keep an eye on what, uh, you know, what the uh, corporates are doing up there. But hopefully it does also give us an ability to be on the moon when we can't be physically. Um, I think that is actually one of the things about the, the um, overview effect. Even if not everybody can go into space, the fact that we have those images that can from space that can look back to the earth and give us the eye, give us that feeling that, I am, you know, we are there in space and we can look back and see the earth. It gives a reality to that term uh, that Buckminster Fuller coined in 1963, spaceship earth. And, those, you know, those very first images from the Apollo, uh, Apollo 8 mission, looking back to the earth, um, the, you know, the very famous Earthrise mission and the later uh, Apollo images, certainly gave um, proof of the, the statement. And it is one of the, uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody that would argue against the fact that having those images from space were very important in giving the environmental movement its kickstart there in the late 60s. Because that concept that Earth is a finite system, just like a spaceship, um, is there to see when you look back and see that little dot in the great blackness of space. You know, we've had some discussion about, um, you know, privatisation and what that could mean, the uh, corporates going to the moon rather than individual nations or whatever, you know, to mine the moon. And I think something we need to think about, whether it's the moon or the asteroids, um, and something maybe the corporates need to think a little bit more about too, is that, um, you know, Will the first trillionaire be made by the person who mines the asteroid, you know, mines the asteroids and brings back 20 tonnes of platinum? Because if he brings back 20 tonnes of platinum, that's going to reduce the price of it on Earth. Um, you know, and this is the thing. I, I sometimes think that perhaps we, we worry a bit too much because um, all-out rampant exploitation is automatically going, well, not automatically, but over time, it's actually going to undercut the source of profit Anyway, if you can bring back so much from space that it drives the prices down on Earth. Uh, now, I'm not an economist, so somebody can tell me that that's BS, but, um, you know, I just get it, just get a, a feeling that uh, sometimes the, the corporates do um, hope for more than, in fact, space mining is going to deliver. And uh, I think we need to think, you know, for the future, the moon is something that is a part of the Earth, it's a part of our culture. How we go to the moon, um, what we do on the moon is going to be very much a measure of us as human beings and what we have perhaps learned from our past or have not learned. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to contact me, you can email thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram as at Annie Handmer. 
You can also support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash the space junk pod. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.